You're listening to Conversations, brought to you by TechSquare ATL. Welcome to the Hump Day Exchange. My name is Scott Henderson, and I am your host. In addition to my podcast duties, I'm podcast duties, excuse me. I am the CEO and co-founder of Sandbox Communities. We're a private company creating social environments within research parks and mixed-use innovation districts that lead to game-changing breakthroughs. We're recording tonight from the home of Sandbox ATL, also known as The Garage. Sandbox ATL is a membership club for TechSquare that provides its members with access to a collaborative workspace and engaging events, both which are on display tonight. The Garage is a 9,000 square foot event venue built for breakthroughs. We like to say it's a smart place in a smart, it's a smart space in a smart place. You can learn more at sandboxatl.com and bookthegarage.com. Hump Day Exchange is the monthly social gathering of the TechSquare community, and this is where we explore a different topic each month on the second Wednesday of the month. You feel free to stop by between 5 and 7 p.m. when we record, and we uh, invite people, three different people with different perspectives on the same topic. So this is a, a show that's presented in partnership with ATDC and Georgia Tech Scheller College of Business. If you uh, want to learn uh, more about the show and hear previous episodes, you can catch it at TechSquareATL.com, alongside other stories about the breakthrough talent, breakthrough ideas, and breakthrough companies found here at TechSquare, the heart of Atlanta's tech scene. So tonight, our topic is design-driven, in which we're going to explore how design, user experience, and user interface are fueling the breakthroughs for startups, corporations, and even the government. We have three experts from these fields tonight. To help us explore this, as well as our robotic bartender, thank you to Monsieur. So if we're slurring a little bit more than previous episodes, it's because of our robotic bartender. It's his fault. All right, so let me invite uh, our first guest in the hot seat, Jay Cornelius from Nine Labs. Jay is the founder and president of Nine Labs, an experienced in strategy consultancy in Atlanta, Georgia. He's also the president of the Atlanta Web Design Group founded the Web Afternoon Event Series, and has lectured on topics from psychology of user experience to modern design philosophy to groups of all sizes across the country. He's worked with companies like Coca-Cola, General Electric, and Pantone, served as an advisor to multiple universities, and as a private consultant to numerous other organizations. But you should know he's also an aficionado of whiskey, cigars, and the big green egg cooking world. Welcome, Jay. Thanks, Scott. Only half of that is true, by the way. And that was all in one breath. And I'll let you figure out which half. <laughs> all right, Jay. Well, you've got uh, an interesting perspective for our conversation around design-driven. Um, I want to start off with uh, kind of understanding a little bit more about your work with Nine Labs and the clients that you've worked with. Um, start with this question. How, how, does, how does your city government, your global nonprofit, your startup, and your corporate clients, which are all in your portfolio, how do they each view design differently? So if you, if you look at that spectrum of design problems and you go from corporations like enterprise organizations on one end of the spectrum and government organizations on the other end of the spectrum, that is a pretty good indicator of how they view the importance of design as a whole. Now, the previous or the, I guess, the current presidential administration is kind of starting to change that with a lot of design directives like 18F, and you can see a lot of the government websites are starting to actually look and perform a lot better. So they're starting to catch on, but enterprise and for-profit companies have really led the way. So one of the challenges that we see is if you're in a for-profit company, you're trying to convince somebody to give you money in exchange for a product or service. So that puts you very close to the needs of the customer. So you're probably more in tune with what that, that customer is trying to accomplish. 
in a nonprofit, you're kind of a proxy, right? You're trying to get people to give you money to go perform a service for somebody else. So you're a little bit disconnected from the, the customer's needs in terms of how you're pitching that product or service and what exactly the outcome that you're trying to achieve in exchange for that value. And then on the government side, it's extract, abstracted even more because you've got bureaucrats and all of these institutions that are typically trying to fight for budget and really what they care about is preserving their own longevity rather than necessarily providing a value to the end user. So the, the disconnect between what w the, the, the design thinking that we bring to the table is typically much larger in a, in a nonprofit or in a government organization than in a corporation. That's starting to change a bit because we're starting to have that conversation around, you know, if, if you are going to be effective, you have to understand how to deliver and help someone achieve their goal. And in order to do that, you have to think about things from their perspective. And that is somewhat the foundation of design thinking in general, is, is how do I help the person who's going to be using this thing accomplish their goals using this thing? So what are the like reference points that each of these different kinds of clients have when they when they're starting to talk to you are they are they sharing the same kind of reference points or are they when they when someone in the in a government agency is talking about design is it the same kind of concept of design that somebody from a say a startup or a or a technology company no it, most people and there are different variances in all of those types of organizations most people, when they think about design, they think about the visual. They think about what does it look like. So it's colors and it's images, it's photos and pixels and all of the things that you see and kind of touch. They don't think about design as being a process or design as being an, an iterative, um, uh, going step by step to achieve a goal. So they don't think about that necessarily as being something that's designed. One of the things that we tell almost everybody that we talk to is design happens whether you want it to or not, is if you choose not to design something, that is a design decision. And as a result of that, the thing that you're working on is going to have a certain outcome, even if you choose not to intentionally shape that outcome. It's kind of like the old lyric, you know, if you choose not to decide, you've still made a choice you're still designing things even if you don't go through a formal design process. You're just designing them really poorly. So it, it's the absence of design is still a design. Correct. So how would you then um, help the, the person who's listening here that hasn't really given much thought between those, the three things we've talked about in terms of design, user experience, user interface? What are the, what are the differences between those elements to you? So design can... Uh, can encompass many, many things. It can be a physical object, it can be a piece of art, it can be a multi-step process that you use to sign up for a web service or to check out for your products on Amazon. All of those things have been designed. When you start talking about the distinction between user experience and user interface, think of it like this. The steering wheel to a car is your user interface. When you have a wreck, that's an experience. So the interface helps direct the experience, but they're not the same thing. So if we're going to talk about designing an experience, we have to look at that in a much deeper context than just the interface. We have to think about how does someone interact with that interface? How do they use that interface to actually achieve something that's beneficial to them? And then in a business context, how do we hopefully capture some value from that transaction along the way? So how, does, how did you get into this position of 
of the world of design and design thinking, design driven. I innovation. lost a bet. <laughs> you lost a bet. <laughs> no, I started. Um, I stumbled into the web in probably '94. A friend of mine was just getting started making websites on a contract basis, and he came to me and said, I need some better software to make websites. This is really painful doing it all in Notepad. And as it turns out, another friend of mine was a VB programmer, and I connected the two of them, and they made a piece of software that was one of the first HTML editors to ever exist on the planet. I helped them grow that company to from the back of a coffee shop to about 50 million users around the world. And in that process, we had to learn kind of from scratch because the, the, the term user experience had really kind of just been coined by Don Norman and it wasn't a very well-known thing. We had to learn that on the fly. So we had to learn by putting a piece of software out and seeing if people liked it, if people used it, if they actually helped them do what they needed to do and use that iterative user feedback loop to improve the software time over time over time and eventually end up with a product that people wanted. So I, I really just kind of jumped in and uh, fell into it by accident. So you've, you've had a chance to work, uh, you and you, your team has uh, done work for the city of Atlanta as well as a uh, uh, big global nonprofit uh, mm -hmm. committee to protect journalists. What, what kind of stuff are you, you guys doing with, with those entities and what, what, how are they using design and, and user experience and user interface? So those two projects, the, the, the project that we did for the city is uh, for the focus on results area of the mayor's office. And what they do is aggregate all of the performance data from city departments and publish it for both internal stakeholders and for the citizens to understand how well the city is doing in various activities. How long does it take to fix a pothole? What is your average 911 response time? Is there a correlation between the number of police on duty and crime rates in a specific region of the city? The way they had been doing that is publishing an annual PDF, basically. And what we did is we took all of that data and put it through a real-time charting system. So now there's a website that you can go to and see all of that data in real time. As they get the data in from the different departments, they simply upload the new data set to the website and it recompiles all the charts on the fly. So what that does is it enables a much, a much um, faster feedback loop between the people who are measuring performance and the people who are actually carrying out those duties. So they've seen performance increase because now they can understand how performance changes or how various changes in those services actually affect performance. So instead of it taking a year, now it can take a month or a two. So it's actually speeding the improvement of the service delivery in the government, which is, I think, a big win. One of the things that we are most proud of in that project is that all of that data is now open source. So anybody can go and take the city data and mash it up however they want and hopefully provide some good feedback to the city on how to do things better. So now we can see really interesting stuff like if you have more uh, uh, emergency responders in a specific region of the city, then that decreases 911 response times by a certain percentage, which lowers crime by a certain percentage. You can see that correlation across all the data, and that's something that they just didn't have before. So by thinking through what people actually wanted to get from the data, we were able to deliver a system that gave them that capability. Very similarly with the Committee to Protect Journalists, they're a global organization, like you said, who is tracking and reporting on aggression towards journalists around the world. So if somebody is thrown in prison in China, they know about it. 
if someone is killed in Pakistan, they know about it. And they have this vast data set where if you needed to know how many, for example, female videographers were imprisoned in the Middle East over the last five years, they can give you that data. The thing is, the way they had to do it or are doing it now is it goes to an, a researcher on their team and they go and find all the articles and compile that report manually. So what we're doing is getting all of that data normalized and in a visualization where all of their media partners or even the general public will be able to go and run that query on their data and get a chart and actually see that in real time. So by exposing all of that data, it provides a little bit more visibility into the problem that journalists face around the world and, and press freedom. It also enables their advocacy workers in real time to walk the halls of Congress and see an ambassador from a country and go up to them and pull up a report in real time on what's happening in their country and have a frank discussion about it instead of having to ask a reporter and then set an appointment for that conversation later. So again, it's speeding that feedback loop and helping people do their jobs better. So um, you're, you're able to articulate this, these ideas you know, very well, I think. And I think um, I'm curious, how are you helping the, those non-design-oriented clients or individuals that you're interacting with? How do you, how do you help them get kind of acclimated and giving them the framework of understanding the, these ideas? Um, I, I find it really helps to not frame it as design because that word carries a lot of meaning in a lot of people's minds. And if we frame that as problem solving instead, it tends to open up the possibilities of their imagination. And so then we have a wider landscape to work with, right? So if we just talk about design, it's gonna be limited to colors and, and placement on the page and those things. But if we talk about what is the thing that you're trying to solve, and we do some root cause analysis on that, and, and we ask them, why is this happening? Why is that a problem? And we go again, why is that a problem? and we keep digging until we find that root cause, then we figure out how to solve that problem, then a lot of those other problems just seem to fall away. And that's a revelation for a lot of people because they just don't, ha they were never taught that discipline, right? So when we come in and we start talking about solving that problem for them, all of a sudden you start to see a lot of alignment even across different silos and different disciplines and people start to get behind that cause to try to solve that thing because they realize it's gonna make their lives easier and solve the problem for their customer or their client or whoever it is that they're serving. So, and w you're also kind of sharing this knowledge kind of in a broader context as well, right? You've got mm -hmm. various workshops and even a podcast, is that right? Yeah, that's part of what we do. So we've got 14 different workshops at Nine Labs that we can run that help people understand various business problems. Things from, is your value proposition the right value proposition for your target market? Do you even know who your target market is? Do you understand the right voice and tone that you should be using to address that target market? Um, do you understand how solving this business problem is going to have an ROI in this business unit? So we help them look across different organizations, uh, specifically with enterprise companies, look across those silos to find ways where they could maybe leverage some knowledge that's locked up in one place and provide some value somewhere else. And then as you mentioned, we're starting to launch a podcast called Design Driven, uh, incidentally, uh, in, in accordance good, with the good theme. Good name. Of, I, like, uh, I like that name. In accordance with, with this evening's theme. Um, that should come out later this year, and that's at designdriven.biz. Definitely good URL. I like that. Good real estate. 
All right, Jay. Well, that, that's your time in the hot seat. We're going to have you back on the, the second segment, but certainly appreciate your time. Give a round of applause for Thanks our for having friend me, friend Jay Cornelius. All right. And as, as he leaves, we'll have Amanda Ryan into the into the hot seat. Round of applause for Amanda. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's not fake applause. That's real, organic, well-designed applause. So, so Amanda, uh, let me tell the world about you. You're the Senior Director of Transit-Oriented uh, Development and Real Estate at MARTA, the nation's ninth largest transit system, which includes heavy rails and bus and paratransit services. She uh, oversees the Office of Transit-Oriented Development. That's TOD or TOD. How do we say that? TOD. TOD and real estate, which, uh, whose vision is to create transit-oriented communities that connect people to opportunities, drive sustainable community development, and promote regional prosperity. Previous to that, she uh, was had a couple different roles at the Invest, Invest Atlanta, which is Atlanta's development authority, um, and the Economic Development Agency for the city of Atlanta. Regular speaker, regular writer, regular le lecturer. Uh, we got a power person here. She's one of named one of Atlanta's po 40 power women in real estate and the Atlanta Business Chronicles commercial real estate who's who. A native of Cincinnati, so Gold Star or Skyline. Which one do you like? Neither? Neither. I'm going to go Graders on that. <laughs> oh, Graders <laughs> with ice cream. Uh, Boston College graduate uh, and then came to, uh, with a sociology degree and then came down here to Georgia Tech uh, for a master's uh, in city and regional planning. So really glad to have you, Amanda. You're doing some really amazing things here in Atlanta with the, the Todd. So thanks for taking the time to be part of this. Yeah, happy to be here. So um, uh, you were saying as we were preparing, you're like, I don't know if I fit in here as a design, but I, I would argue, yes, you are. You, you definitely, this is all about design. This is designing the financing, it's designing the codes, it's designing the, the ideas of how people could actually invest in the real estate to help make this stuff. So um, I'm curious, uh, let's start with this question. How have you really seen the role of design uh, within these large city projects that you've been involved with change and evolve over time? Well, I like what Jay said, that design is really just problem solving. And I feel like my job is most definitely problem solving, um, particularly the projects that I'm working on right now. They're all incredibly challenging to deliver because they're all public-private partnerships. Um, but getting back to your question about how design has evolved in Atlanta since I've been here, um, you know, I think the overarching theme and how Atlanta has changed from a real estate development perspective really is that it's just in, become increasingly urban. Uh, Atlanta grew up during um, the 50s and 60s. Uh, the interstate highway system was constructed and that resulted really in a mass exodus of people from the city to the suburbs. And the land use patterns in the suburbs were really characterized by a separation. So you had office parks, you had um, single-family residential communities, you had shopping malls, you had institutional campuses, whether they were religious or educational, and those were all separately organized, surrounded by surface parking lots, connected by roads. Uh, so if you wanted to get anywhere, you had to do so in a car. And that was really the driving land use landscape in Atlanta for decades. What we've seen in Atlanta over the past decade, really, is uh, an increasing urbanization and a mix of uses. So we've seen people come more, into more the city. More people moving back into the city and That's right. filling in. Right. For, for a long time, Atlanta was losing population. 
to the suburbs. The city of Atlanta proper was losing population to the suburbs. And this, the region was growing, but the city was shrinking. And we've seen over the past decade, I think actually even over the past two decades, that the city of Atlanta proper, their population has seen some growth now. So there is a return to the city. And a lot of that is because people have a desire to be in a more vibrant urban environment. When you have that suburban organization of land uses, it really isn't vibrant. And you're isolated, stuck in your car, moving from one place to another. Whereas in the city, you have the ability to walk places, you can take transit, you can ride your bike, you have mobility options. And you have a mix of uses in the city. So within one building, you could have residences, offices, and some sort of active use at street level, like a restaurant or a shop. Uh, and that just makes for really a more vibrant place. So it, it's interesting because um, uh, I, I spent, I moved down here originally to Atlanta in uh, 95 in the, the buildup for the Olympics. Um, and then uh, moved back, well, I'm originally from Omaha uh, to 90, in 96, but then moved back down here into 2000, stayed here to 2006 left to go to uh, Indianapolis and then Boston then moved back in 2012 yeah. and I uh, remember and this is having come from the Northeast Regional Rail Corridor like yeah. I could literally ride my bike from my house in Wenham Massachusetts a mile to a train stop take the commuter rail into North Station then either take a, a, a Hubway shared bike or take the the T down to the South Station hop on the Acela and be in New York City by lunchtime all by riding my bike a mile, which blew my mind. I was like, right. this is amazing. All right? And then I'd be in Penn Station, and I can go anywhere I wanted on that. There's. Then I moved back to Atlanta, and, and it was like, wait, well, I felt like in a, a time warp. I went back in time. But the thing that struck me about moving back to Atlanta, having spent a lot of time in, in the Boston-New York corridor, was how fully developed those train stations and the, and the rail stations and the, the T stations and the, you know, and the metro stations all were with buildings going high and right. it felt like vibrancy. But then when I started coming down on MARTA through Midtown feeling like the Midtown station feeling like, whoa, there's nothing here. I feel like so that's changing though, right? right. That's, that's so talk about more about the whole transit oriented development approach uh, that you're doing at MARTA. What's what does that mean and what are you guys looking at? Sure. So when MARTA was originally conceived um, in the 1960s, it was conceived as a suburban transportation system, which made sense because that was how Atlanta had developed. So our system um, utilized a lot of park and ride lots so the people could drive in from their home in the suburbs, park at one of the rail stations, get on the train and go into the central business district, which was downtown. And at that point, that's where the vast majority of jobs were located. We didn't have multiple job centers like we have today or any sort of flexibility in the work environment. Uh, today, as I've discussed, land use patterns have changed. There's um, an increasing uh, move to the center city. There's a desire to be in an urban, high-density, walkable area. And so at MARTA, we're able to capitalize on that because we now have a lot of these underutilized surface parking lots. We own over 25,000 parking spaces, of which less than, uh, less than half are used on a regular basis. So we're able to take 25, that 25,000 and less than half used on a daily basis. So we're able to take that very well located, underutilized surface parking 
and redevelop it into a higher and better use. And so we're taking that property, we're partnering with private developers and creating these transit-oriented communities around our stations. And transit-oriented development really is just people-oriented development, pedestrian-oriented development. It's the antidote to the development patterns of Atlanta old. Mm -hmm. And so what if you're out and about right now, what's a good example of a Todd that's that's vibrant and working right now? So uh, we have MARTA-sponsored TOD projects yeah, Marta, Marta and then TOD, kind yeah. of naturally occurring TODs. Um, we only really have one that is in existence in Atlanta, and that's at the Lindbergh Center Station, and that itself is only partially complete. So you can go to other cities. Um, D.C. is a great example. WMATA has several TOD projects that they've constructed on old parking lots in a very similar manner to what we're trying to do here in Atlanta. Um, but we do have a project under construction right now. It's at our Edgewood-Candler Park Station in the Edgewood community. Um, so we're really excited about that. And we have five others in the planning stages. So what, what is that? Um, I mean, that's, that's involving a lot of problem solving. That's involving a lot of stakeholders. And, right. and it seems to be a, a lot of types of different design that's going into that between real right. estate planning uh, to the actual buildings themselves and yeah. then the usage of that. So yeah. how, how, is, how are you guys using design and the, the idea of user experience and user interfaces to help drive and frame those conversations? We're really trying to prioritize the patron experience and the pedestrian experience at our TOD projects. Uh, so what that means is we're trying to design the environment so that the pedestrian is prioritized over anything else, over any other way that you would access the project, whether that's in a single occupancy vehicle or on a bus. So we're going to have wide side sidewalks at all of our projects. We like to have active uses at street level. And I mentioned examples of that are shops or retail. Uh, but the goal is to have a, a really engaging, safe feeling environment. And safety is created by having kind of eyes on the sidewalk or eyes on the street, as um, Jane Jacobs discussed. And benches, trees that provide shade, that's really important in Atlanta. Um, we also wanna make sure that we have parks and plazas, gathering spaces where the community can come together and connect. And we also wanna create that mix of uses. And the mix of uses is important because that means that people will be there at all different times of the day doing different things. So that in itself creates a vibrancy. And it also provides convenience for the MARTA patron or the person that lives or work in that, works in that project because then they're able to achieve multiple things without having to get in their car or go elsewhere. If you can do your dry cleaning, get your coffee and go to your office all at the same MARTA station, then that saves you trips. Uh, so we really want to, and, and importantly, if you do drive, it saves car trips. Uh, but if you're a transit user, it certainly saves transit trips as well. So we're, we're trying to create convenience. So you're talking about uh, infill, and you're talking about uh, urbanization, yeah. and you're, you know, the idea of these TODs and building it around these stations where you have all these parking spots in, in itself will create some density. Right. And it seems to me even change the nature of the system because now instead of being the, the suburban commuter driven, when fully built out, these TODs will actually be very vibrant sources of ridership, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we have three goals for our TOD program. 
increase ridership by concentrating new uses at the station and also creating transit accessible destinations. Uh, we're also generating revenue to support our operations by selling and leasing this land to third party developers. That helps us to provide better service and ideally then also increase ridership. And we're looking to both support the, the local community development in the neighborhoods immediately surrounding the station by providing amenities um, that they need, as well as supporting regional economic development because we recognize that increasingly MARTA is viewed as an economic development tool that can help to bring jobs and investment to Atlanta. Yeah, and so that, now that is being recognized and you've got large companies like State Farm and, and Porsche and yep. others that are citing that as important. And even knowing AirWatch was drawing a lot of uh, folks that were working for them from Midtown, downtown, all the way up to where they're in Sandy Springs. Um, how does that factor into the MARTA as a system now that you've got this changing uh, prioritization and emphasis by the private sector on it. Yeah, it's it's been huge for us, and it's relatively recent. Uh, when economic developers or site selection consultants are working with large companies that are considering opening a new office or relocating their corporate office, um, they have a long list of things that they take into consideration. And MARTA was always on the list, but it was never at the top of the list. It was just kind of something that they looked into and they reported out on and it wasn't really affecting the ultimate decision. But now we're finding that MARTA is at the top of the list and it's one of a, a very limited number of key decisions um, that is driving where people locate. And um, Mercedes-Benz is another great example. We were brought into one of their site visits um, early on in the process to just kind of talk about what our expansion plan was, what our TOD program looked like, what, what we could offer to them and their employees that would help to lure them to Atlanta. And I it was just kind of an interesting discussion to be part of because, of course, Mercedes-Benz is an automobile company. Their business model is dependent upon people continuing to buy cars and drive places, and yet they prioritized MARTA access, MARTA proximity over many other things and ultimately selected a location that is within a half a mile of our Sandy Springs station. Wow. And I, I will also add the other important thing about that is these are of course C-suite executives that are making these relocation decisions. The elected officials in the Georgia State Legislature are taking note of that and that's starting to change how they perceive MARTA and how they value MARTA. And that's really important because they are the lawmakers. Yeah. The MARTA Act is, is the law that governs what we do at MARTA. And if we want any change in that, we have to go to the Georgia State Legislature to request that. So having them value us is really important. Yeah. Well, you did it. You made it through the hot seat. So thank you very much, Amanda, for coming on in. We'll have you back here in the next segment. And while you make, uh, make room, uh, I'll introduce Dave Black who is a innovation outlaw. <laughs> He's a design and product innovator for Medicare Pathfinder, uh, an ATDC company. Uh, Dave, you have an interesting background. You've done brand and product innovation for Fortune 500 companies, for startups. Um, you you kind of got your, your teeth cut with Dallas Cowboys and Indy Racing League. Mm -hmm. about that? Pretty cool stuff. Uh, went to Apple's Asia Consulting Engineering Team for a four-year assignment in Beijing. Um, also, what other cool stuff do you, oh, uh, you're on the board of uh, Product Development Management Association, member of user experience, uh, 
professional association, interactive uh, interaction design association, all those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alphabet soup. But most notably, the current <laughs> cannonball run record record holder on a mission to establish higher interstate speed limits. So I'm waiting for Dom DeLuise, <laughs> Dom DeLuise and uh, Burt Reynolds, Burt Reynolds yes. to be busting out anywhere in here. And Amen. if you don't know the Cannonball Run movie that was definitive of the 1980s cable generation, uh, you can YouTube it. So they're, they're going to be bringing it back, I think. There, there's, there's, there's talks about another one in the works. So that, that, that'll be interesting. I'll put a spotlight back on that subject. So it's very, very cool. Well, glad, glad to have you. Uh, we're definitely going to explore a lot of stuff, especially when we bring everyone back for the, the roundtable. Um, what's it like working as a product designer and a product innovator inside corporations versus inside startups? I'll, I'll start with the startups. I mean, with a startup, you really truly have free reign to implement a, a kind of a full cycle, complete design thinking, um, user-centered design approach to what you're building. Um, and what I mean by that is that you have a lot of time to do a lot of immersions and a lot of empathy work with uh, individual users, do a lot of customer discovery, um, put together prototypes, go back to those customers, try them out, come back. I mean, kind of, kind of as IDEO and Stanford D School actually preaches, you can do all of those things. So um, in the startup world, it's great. You, you, you're given that amount of uh, leeway to do that. Um, on the corporate side, it's a little bit different because most of the time, innovation starts kind of as an idea from a stakeholder within the, the organization. They say, you know what, we want to, you know, hey, we have the spreadsheet, we want to make some kind of an app. Um, and, and in that case, you know, you're sort of now on a, on a timeline, so to speak, uh, to, to deliver something. So you're never really going to get those iterative feedback loops. I mean, in, in, in corporations, and, and I say this um, with uh, all due respect to my corporate friends, a lot of times they, they approach agile the same way. It's, it's, it's agile-ish. They have some sort of a sprint every day. They do things that look and feel sort of agile, but at the end of the day, they don't actually take that feedback loop and incorporate improvements into the app. They hit sort of a functional milestone and they wash their hands of the product or the project. Um, so that's, I think, the difference is that you kind of have to hit this end point that there's a budget and that's it. Where in a startup, you keep the momentum going, you keep getting the feedback, you keep bringing it back into the application, and it becomes more full cycle rather than just sort of taking bits and pieces and elements of this uh, on the corporate side. So. Um, you know, most corporations, what they'll do is they'll send someone off to the Stanford D School and they'll come back and they'll be, yeah, 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 you know, design thinking. Um, but they sort of just, oh, hey, we'll interview some people. We'll do a quick little prototype. We'll, it, it's, it's very design kinda, thinking light. Kind of like, kind of like it, but not. Right, like, right. They're emulating what they think it should be. Exactly. So what, what do you think is keeping them back from actually going head first in this? So... Having worked with two different corporations, and, and one was actually a, uh, a, a big timeshare resort company out in Las Vegas that I uh, had, a, had an engagement with, um, their VP wanted to be more innovative, but he didn't provide the air cover. Uh, when we were at IHG, on the other hand, we actually did have some air cover, and so innovation really needs to kind of sit in its own space, um, not inside of an IT department. Um, this timeshare company put us in uh, uh, an IT department. So um, what, it, what it felt like to the stakeholders who had these ideas of things that they wanted done was that we were pushing back. And the reason we were pushing back was we were saying, hey, listen, you know, we really need to talk to the, 
to the guests of the hotel. We need to figure out exactly what they want. Uh, we had a VP who was saying, you know, I want to do push notifications to people who have the app so that I can tell them about promotions. And I'm like, well, do you guys have a email that you're already doing with that? No, we don't. We just want to do push notifications to our, I'm like, is that something they really want? I don't know, but that's what I want. I'm like, hmm, okay. So it's, it's, that pushback basically led to me, you know, say, you know, we, we parted ways in a not so amicable way after a couple months. So, um, but, you know, IHG on that's the- That's why you're the innovation outlaw. Oh, I, I wasn't gonna take that for a second. So, <laughs> um, but, but with, with IHG, that they, they, we did actually have executive support for our team. Um, and, and, and so in that particular structure, brands, brand managers would have some idea about something and they'd bring it uh, to our team uh, and, and they would expect us to run through some tests with this. And at the same time, we were also doing our own um, design thinking processes and empathy work with guests, uh, discovering new needs that they may have, um, things about their arrival experience and some other things. So we actually had two parallel tracks going. One was dealing with ideas. The other was actually dealing with real true guest needs, um, things about their relationship with housekeeping. And, you know, we, we dressed up as housekeepers and worked alongside them for a few days. We, uh, you know, we worked the front desks, you know, we, we did everything with this. Um, and so they really understood this, this uh, concept of actually immersing yourself in the lives of uh, the staff and also the guests to really understand what their needs are and, and kind of going really deep into that psyche of what they want. So. Um, one example was a product that we started developing that was to improve the guest arrival experience at the Intercontinental brand. Um, essentially, their problem was guests weren't being recognized as they came to the front desk. You could be an ambassador uh, with loyalty or you could be a new guest. Um, there was no distinction in the way that they were greeted. And we took that and said, you know, really what is happening when a guest leaves their home? We started the journey way before their arrival, and we started saying, well, you know what really happens when they leave their home is that there's this uh, abandonment of kind of those higher order Maslow needs. You know, you have this sense of belonging and security and family that you have, and your power structure is sort of centered around your home. Well, when you leave that, you're sort of suspending it. You're kind of saying, hey, I'm actually, a, I'm kind of a badass, you know? Here I am in this town. Um, uh, but you know what, is there a way we can actually appeal to them by speaking their language a little bit more? What can we do to really engage this guest in their own language, their own culture, um, really provide them with just the things that they need? Don't tell them about the yoga class if they're not someone who does yoga, but you know, tell them about the bar, give them a bar coupon, do something else. Um, if you have a suite that you wanna sell, um, you know, maybe this person needs to hear about the view this other person might need to hear about the inclusivity of being part of a club that for their stay. So, you know, we, we had this very, very extensive uh, big data play that actually was to really look into human psychographics and, and, and look at various things to understand what that person really needs and cue the front desk staff at the time of their arrival. And so we actually st set up a prototype that um, read cell phones as you walked up to the front desk and hmm. would present that person's name and a picture and what you should say to them. Oh, wow. The prototype get uh, good feedback loops? Oh, on? they laid off our team. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
seeing a pattern here, Dave. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so so, uh, so let's talk about Medicare Pathfinder, that uh, startup that you're helping out yes. here. Yes. What, what is it, and at what point did design become a strategic priority? So Medicare Pathfinder is a web and mobile-based platform to help seniors choose the right Medicare plan. Um, if you've ever helped a family member with Medicare, it's extremely complicated. Uh, essentially, a study was done that showed that 80% of seniors are in the wrong plan, and they're paying on average $800 a month, or I'm sorry, $800 per year too much for their Medicare. Um, and, and as a result of that, they're also not getting the services that they would they should use, um, and then they're not having good quality of health care, and so it's causing all sorts of other problems and more expenses later. So, um, so for example, in this zip code right here, um, I mean, Medicare is pieced together with lots of different plans, uh, or lots of different things. You have these supplements, you have, you know, traditional, you have these Medicare Advantage plans. Well, you piece them all together and you get a plan uh, that works for you. Well, in this zip code, for example, there's maybe 1,200 permutations of that that a person would have to go through and try to figure out, you know, you know, high monthly copay, low monthly copay, you know, benefit, how much is my, you know, emergency room visit, all these different things. And so uh, Medicare Pathfinder is taking predictive analytics. We're also taking some decision tree things and trying to bring it down into the most essential decision point a person can have. And that is how much is my healthcare going to cost me this year? Uh, and that's predictive. Um, what's it going to cost me per month? And that's a fixed cost based upon the plans they choose. And then what are the trade-offs with this plan? Uh, and so that's what we are. Um, the second part of the question is, when did we know? Well, we initially did some, um, I, when, I, when I came on board, um, it was still going to be presented sort of as insurance is presented on websites. It's, here's some plans, here's co-pays, here's all this data. And it was very much in the language of an insurance company. Um, we wanted to shift that language around to be in the language of the user. So at this point we said, well, let's ask the person, do you really care about keeping your doctor or not? Do you really love Piedmont Hospital or do you love uh, Northside? Um, you know, what are your prescriptions? So some things are very feel and value based. Some things are very factual. Some things are based on their situation in terms of the medicines they use. Um, so we built, spun up a quick prototype that was a, sort of like a TurboTax. Let's go through, ask a few questions. Um, and we took people through this process and they said, how much do you want to keep your doctor? And they were like, a lot. They, they love their doctor, they want to keep them. And when they got to the end and we showed them some results, and these were just dummy results on very cheap, quick, you know, three-day Axure prototypes, um, they were like, well, you know, I really don't need to keep my doctor. And it was at that moment that we realized, you know what, there's a lot of behavioral economics where someone says they want something, but they really don't. And we would have missed that nuance if we had just simply done traditional customer discovery. We said, well, what do you want? I said, well, I want to keep my doctor. You know, and a lot of times that's the corporate mentality of, oh, this is what we need and this is what we want. But it's not until you really test it that you'll actually uncover that this isn't necessarily what's going to happen in the real world. And so we actually, at that point, started making adjustments for the user interface to support visualization of these trade-offs. Hmm. That's pretty dang cool. So um, I think uh, I want to say that you've made it through the hot seat section. Cool. So a round of applause for him. He's technically not leaving the hot seat. It's turning into a seat. We'll have Jake, Jen, and Amanda join us. And if you can take that mic out of the rack, uh, and we're going to, uh, you, you and Amanda can share that microphone, and Jay and I can share this microphone. 
Um, yeah, feel free to get drinks uh, if you're in the audience, uh, refill your plates. But uh, now it gets the fun part, S segment two. Uh, burning questions that you guys have for each other. Do you, Same you, face. Yes, you're, in, you're right here. This is, we're in the second event. So if you're listening to Jay talk, or, or you guys are listening to Jay or vice versa, uh, what, were, what were questions in your mind that you had for Jay? Well, I, I have spent some time in the public sector and I'm familiar with the work that you're doing at the city. I'm curious about if given the opportunity, what innovation, what innovation you might like to introduce at MARTA? So it's funny that you ask because <laughs> David and I were talking as kind of in the background as you were on the podcast and the concept of design around the stops and bringing more activity and density and diversity and, and all of the things that a thriving city needs to the center of Atlanta is, as, as Scott knows, because we've had lengthy conversations about this, enormously interesting to me. Um, I was born in Athens, and so while not uh, technically an Atlanta native, I'm more Atlanta native than a lot of people. And having lived elsewhere for a long time and come back, I was honestly a little bit disappointed with, with where Atlanta had progressed in 2008. And I see so much opportunity here, and I am so fascinated by how we can use small incentives and design thinking and all the discipline that I've spent many, many years of my life developing to help Atlanta become a greater place to live and a better place for all the people who are here. So I, th I think MARTA is an instrumental piece of that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously transit is, is very important to the future of the city. I'm just not quite sure how, but I would love to help you answer that question. Well, I totally agree with you. One of the reasons I'm in Atlanta is because there's so much opportunity here. It's not a perfect city. It's not fully built out. You have the ability, if you live in Atlanta, to really make a tangible impact on how it grows and develops and what it becomes. And I think MARTA is a perfect example of that. We're still relatively low density. We have a lot of opportunity to continue to grow and densify within the MARTA system area and really even beyond that. And to have an opportunity to shape that as a design professional, I think is great. And I think we would welcome input from design professionals, not just developers. I think there's a, a, a lengthy substantive discussion to happen after this. <laughs> I had a question for Amanda, and that is how do you determine um, what people's needs are? For example, this, you talked about safety, for example. Is that something that is just something in the industry that's really needed, or do you have you guys actually had do you, do you immerse with passengers? I mean, do you have people follow along and just ask questions and find out kind of qualitatively or quantitatively what their needs are? Um, so just MARTA, Marta patrons? Yes. Um, well, we do have an Office of Research and Analysis at MARTA. So we do regular surveying of all of our patrons on a number of topics. Um, we actually all of the departments at MARTA have the opportunity to provide input on the type of questions that are asked and the type of information that's collected. So that's done on a regular basis. We collect information on ridership, et cetera. Um, we're in the process right now of working to expand the system. And I think that more than anything, if you ask people what they want, 
they would say just for Marta to go more places, um, to, to really take them where they need to go. And one way of doing that is certainly expansion, taking the system beyond where it currently reaches. Another way to do that is put places that they need to go where the system already exists. And so part, TOD is part of that. Creating infill stations, which is something that we're considering as part, part of that, rather than expanding further out, just putting stations in between where stations exist and activity nodes have emerged. Um, and uh, another part of that is improving last mile connectivity. So that if you do take the train, or the bus, and it's not getting you quite to your final destination, you have options on how you can get there. And so we have a partnership with Uber that helps to accomplish that. The city of Atlanta just introduced a bike share program. We're working with them to locate kiosks at our stations. That helps, as does just creating a better pedestrian environment. So you have at least a sidewalk network throughout the city. So if you choose to, you can walk from the station, from your bus stop to your ultimate destination. It's interesting. Listen, you, uh, you each have brought kind of the human perspective. So you studied, Amanda, you studied sociology. You've been talking, Dave, about psychographics. Uh, and, and Jay, you've been talking about how you teach about the psychology of design. To talk more about your, what, what your discipline, how you approach that. I mean, how are you using sociology? How are you using the psychographic stuff? And how are you using the psychology elements? However, whatever order you want to go with. Okay, I'll start since I have the microphone still. Um, I, I think sociology is incredibly valuable. And what brought me to sociology was just kind of an, a fascination with how people interact within the built environment and how the built environment affects people. And moving to where I am today, I very much recognize that we need to understand what the needs of the people are, our passengers, residents within the city, residents that are within our service area in order to really serve them the best that we can. And so I think it's um, incredibly important to really understand that and, and to, to understand the challenges more so than anything and how the built environment can help to address those challenges. And I'll just give a quick example. Um, we're involved with an organization called the Transformation Alliance, which is focused on equitable transit-oriented development. So we are trying to implement TOD projects at our stations that meet the needs of the community. And we, we actually try and measure what the needs of the community are. And we do that through a tool that was developed that's data-based as well as through community engagement. Um, and so the, the needs will vary based on the community, but it can be affordable housing, it can be amenities, it can be fresh produce. And so we really try and understand from that perspective how our projects can help improve the outcomes within that community. I think to kind of build on what you said, uh, one of the things that we tell, I, I say this in lectures and I tell all of our clients is, is people are often mistaken that we're not solving technology problems. We're solving human problems. And when they think of it as a technology problem and take the human out of the equation, they always miss the mark. So if we can reframe the discussion around how do we help humans have more productive and enjoyable lives, then we're actually going to get to the root cause of, of what we need to do. So I, I think the development around what MARTA is doing and thinking about adding more stops and adding more density of stops is really, really smart because that's going to make it a more attractive means to get around, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and partnerships with people like Uber and like solving that last mile problem are, are definitely also part of it. The thing that I have not been able to figure out is, you know, we do a lot of work in psychographics and thinking about 
what is the thing that's going to trigger that person to, to change their behavior. So how do we change the idea that I'm in Buckhead, I don't want to go to Midtown to do something because it's far away or it's hard to get to or there's no parking or whatever. How do we get around that? How do we change that perception in terms of um, overcoming their objection to using something like MARTA to get there? So I think one of the biggest challenges we face at MARTA is perception. And that gets to your point exactly. How do you start to change people's perception, how they view the system? Um, and I don't necessarily have the answer to that question. Um, I think that we've done, our general manager, Keith Parker, has done a pretty good job of that, just kind of by addressing real basic stuff, like getting our finances in order, making sure the system is safe, um, implementing technology upgrades so it's easier to use and it's more attractive to people who have a choice. Um, but it's, it's more grassroots, I think, that change in perception. And I, I don't, I think if we knew how to do that, we would have done it already. So I think we're, we're trying to do it through a number of different routes. Um, but that's by far the biggest issue because people come up to me all the time and, and they have this perception of MARTA and MARTA and what it was maybe when the system was created or they had one bad experience 20 years ago or their friends just don't think that MARTA is something that makes sense to utilize and it's really difficult to shake that. Um, I mean, to come back to the question, um, we, we were talking, I guess, a little bit about psychographic. Well, I mean, it's back to kind of what you're saying, there's also that identity component. You know, you say, how do we make, how do we change the perception of, of, of MARTA, but it really comes down to how do we change the perception of myself as, as a writer, you know? And so it's like, what is it about the person that makes them think that they're not someone who uses the system? And so, I mean, that comes back to a little bit, you know, we talking psychographics. I mean, he's in the same discipline as well. So, um, or Jay, I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> I'm pointing on a podcast, doesn't quite work, so. <laughs> That's the value of being here in person. Exactly, so um, so when I work with a startup, for example, um, one of the things that we, I've started doing, and when we, were at, when we were with IHG, we were doing very traditional Stanford style, uh, IDEO style, design thinking as it's taught, which is to do this uh, empathy, which um, if you're not familiar with the term empathy, it means that you're asking a person a whole lot of questions about really who they are, what, they, what their values are. Um, you, you really start to dig, you ask why a number of times, um, and, and sometimes you have these really crazy moments where a person starts crying and they have this emotion, this psychological breakthrough where they're like, I had no idea about myself that that was what I'm all about, and so um, I love when that happens, by the way. Um, it's like the cheapest therapy someone could ever have, and, it's, um, and, and we leave them in this wrecked state. It's really terrible. Um, but but what, what we started doing was I started realizing that with the startups that I've worked with, that there's actually a certain type of user that you really need to engage in the very beginning of a startup, and that is your early adopter. And, 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 and let's take Young and Rubicam has this four C's framework for psychographics, and it's very simple and elegant, um, very old. Uh, but it works, um, and so you have this kind of explorer persona, and, 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 it, and, it, and it really kind of looks, when you look at crossing the chasm, they're kind of your innovator type of person. They're willing to take risks on new things, and they're the ones who develop a sense of identity around having, being the guy who has the new thing, not so much 
the utility of the product, but being the guy with the new thing. And so you need to make sure you have the utility in the product. You need to give them a story that works uh, for them to take to someone else, and that will be the person that they like to influence. And so when we're doing empathy work, we also do a little kind of a revised Young and Rubicam survey to find out where they fall on that continuum. We start asking about, you know, what their influences are, who their friends, you know, what, how, do, how do you make decisions about things that you buy? How do you make travel decisions? And if they start saying that they kind of look to their neighbors, we kind of go, ah, oh, they're kind of in the mainstream. If they start to say, no, I just do my, the research myself and I love to tell my friends about this, okay, you know, this is kind of a person that we really need to, 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 to at least put that data point next to the results of what we've discovered about that person. And so that kind of, that's kind of how we bring in psychographics into this. And, and, and I think with a go-to-market, with a new startup, or any kind of a new product, it's very valuable to do that. Um, Long-term, psychographics start to diminish in value. You want really behavioral types of inputs, but that's a whole other topic, so. <laughs> um, as people start to use the, the, the products, you want to start doing more qualitative uh, behavioral uh, data analytics at this point. Um, you're going to actually do usability. You're going to also try to find some other metrics about what they do, their buying habits, and some of these other things. And, and that can also change how you actually start to market and what market. It, this, we're starting to get more into kind of the marketing side of things. but. Um, but in terms of product development, product design, psychographics seem to, to be a good starting point most of the time. So, and uh, open it up to our, our live studio audience here. If uh, anyone's been sitting here with a burning question, uh, come prove to the audience, uh, the audience at home, that there is a live audience here with a pulse. We were just doing that. To, anybody got Stephen, or I want to call you out here. Your designer, you come on up here. Come on up. Anybody want to come ask the question? I'm gonna have to make up a voice and do my own thing. Malcolm, it looks like you're about to ask a question. No? Okay. All right. All right, this is very awkward. Yizu, come up here, buddy. No. Jeez, I'm just, this is, this is the segment where, uh, oh, he got one, there he is, he's hiding back there. Big audience, way in the back, way in the back. He's coming all the way up. You, you wanna ask it? Come up here and ask it, the, uh, the microphone. So I guess this is more of like a comment and not really a question. Oh, my name is Ito. I'm a technical account manager at UserIQ. And so I guess, Amanda, I'm, I, this is more like a comment. I'm really impressed with like the, the, the whole concept of adding more stops in between MARTA as opposed to expanding MARTA out because I feel like creating the incentive for people to live closer to the city will make better public transportation overall. I'm Right now I'm reading the uh, the the, um, a book by Dan, uh, Donald Shoup called The uh, High, uh, High Cost of Free Parking, and I love the book. It's, it's kind of frustrating though, especially with how the current concept of parking design works, so I guess I'd like your opinion on how like, city planners design parking for cities right now. Yes, that, that's a great book. Um, so first I'll touch on the infill station comment. Um, so if, if anybody here lives in the city of Atlanta, you're going to have an opportunity to vote on a half cent sales tax increase for MARTA this fall. Included um, within the project list that has been developed and approved by city council are, I think, four infill stations. 
um, infill stations are are less expensive than expansion and like i said before they kind of have the opportunity to serve an area where a market has grown that didn't exist when the system was initially implemented and with the infill stations that we've identified it also provides a opportunity for a future connection with the Atlanta Beltline or the Atlanta Streetcar. So we have one, let's see if I can remember all of them, at Crog Street on the East Line. We have one uh, on the North Line at Armour Yard where um, there's been a lot of like Sweetwater's located, there's been a lot of new development in that vicinity and that would be a Beltline connection. Uh, we have one at um, Boone, formerly Simpson, um, which would provide a connection to the Beltline that's on the west side, would be an extension of our Proctor Creek line, and then one somewhere on the south side, either at West End or Oakland City, somewhere between there. Uh, so those are infestations, depending on whether it's um, subterranean, at grade, or aerial or at least $50 million. Um, there was one constructed in, in Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago. I think it was $150 million. It was an aerial structure, so a little bit more expensive. But they're not cheap. But still, it's a more cost-effective than heavy rail expansion. So that is something that we're considering. So is that tax to get one of those stations or multiple? So the way that we're approaching this opportunity is it would be a half cent that would be coterminous with the existing MARTA tax, so it goes out to 2057, and a project list has been developed, and we are describing it as a menu of options. So there are more projects on the list than the sales tax can finance, but it gives us the flexibility to pursue projects that, for a number of different reasons, make more sense at different points in time. So on that list, there are a lot of Atlanta Beltline transit projects, there are streetcar projects, there are a couple of um, MARTA expansion projects, as well as um, improved bus service throughout the city of Atlanta, um, and a couple of other things, including the infill stations. It's a public document, it should be on the city of Atlanta's website. That's a big deal, so if you are in the city of Atlanta, this is, means a lot to you, definitely come out for that. I think, Ed, you had? Come, come on up here, and then Malcolm, after that, finally put you on the spot. Thanks. Dave, you're talking about a lot of cool things you guys are doing at IHG. I am curious that the marketing word has come up once tonight. I am curious how the offering of the hotel or how the hotel thinks about the value it's going to get out of these new features or these new benefits for, uh, for the customers. How does that factor into this, or, or, or I guess how does that get monetized, if I dare say that? Um... That, it's a great question because at the end of the day, the, the type of innovation work you do in a corporation does have to have some sort of monetary value. And so whenever we would try to raise money internally for these pilot tests and even the bigger projects, we had to have some sensible business case. And it felt very startup-y. It was, it was very much of a, a pitch deck. Um, so, you know, for example... Um, there's really two metrics that a hotel uses to drive their business. One is the revenue. Uh, the other is their qualitative, what they, and, and with IHG they call it the heartbeat scores. And these are survey results. And um, this is how they judge each of their franchisees' properties. Um, so, and there's usually a correlation between the quality of the heartbeat scores and revenue. And so they really try to focus on the heartbeat scores, which has to do with 
how the guests enjoyed their stay, um, were they greeted, were they known, were they, did they feel at home? I mean, so, so a lot of very uh, um, qualitative, qualitative questions about very soft uh, uh, subjects. So um, it, it, it eventually does filter back up into um, uh, the guest experience, and that's really what they focus on. And, and the brand management it was one side of that, and they're the ones who really, truly crafted the brand experience. Um, we just simply became, our team was really a filter for the brands um, to see if there was some new ways of, of experimentation. And so we, we kind of became the, uh, the, the feet on the street to basically test these theses that they had about, um, uh, about these things. So, but as a result of the immersions we did with guests, innovation spills out. I mean, ideas spill out of those things as well. You know, we're talking to housekeepers and, you know, we go in there and, and, the, and the challenge to us was how do we hide the cart? But by the time we were done, it was like, they need new uniforms that make them have a, a more favorable sense of self. <laughs> uh, you know, these weird little things kind of spill out in these insights as you do this uh, uh, immersion process. So it's a very, very, to me, it's a very fun and cool thing to do this uh but but you know you know you, you spend a day talking to someone and all of a sudden you're gonna have probably three valid startup ideas that spill out of this yeah so what i'm uh, you know, listening to all three of you it really sounds like you know, it's just a matter of feedback loops is, keeps coming back up right you're yep. seeking that, that that idea of like i'm seeing something um mm -hmm. what's that oh the mic's off can you hear all right so What's, what's really uh, striking to me is the fact that you have feedback loops you guys keep talking about in the sense that uh, it seems like uh, it, from an organization, whether you're, you're governmental, quasi-governmental corporation to a startup, it's how open you are to that feedback you're getting. And, and then pair that with this idea that also having the inquisitive mind bringing the whys and what is the root causes, what's, what can we have. And it's interesting that you talk about design, Jay, that this is a continual process. It, it sounds like what Marta's really doing is that it was starting to realize here's what the user base is and if we can evolve how we are creating infill stations and TODs that, that allow for uh, people to use the system a little bit differently and sees it creates more of importance. It's, that's where it's at. So let me let me finish with um, our uh, the final the big question for each one of you and go in the order that we started in the hot seat. So we'll start with Jay and each of you ask, answer the same question. Um, what's your white whale when it comes to design? What what what, what keeps you up where you want it? It's haunting you. You haven't achieved that white whale yet. That might take some thought. Um, that was the intent of the question? Well, then you should have asked it earlier, <laughs> <laughs> given us time to think. Um, I can take what you think. Yeah, why don't, why don't you do that? I'm going hand to it, hand it to David. Yeah, I, I've got, uh, my, this is the one that's been keeping me up all the time, which has to do with predicting resonation and using big data to sort of inform to be, to be an input into this empathy process that I was talking about when we come to select people. And like I said, we do a little bit of a psychographic touch on people when we actually engage and immerse ourselves into their lives. Um, I would like to actually be able to have a data set that actually let us be able to predict what decisions we make will actually resonate with that person. And uh, uh, that's, that's been a topic that I've looked at for a number of years because it's, um, uh, even with one of my startups, it was, 
uh, it was called Thingsly, and it was all about kind of the things that make you resonate, things that, you know, and, and can you create correlations between people based on the things they like? Uh, but everybody has a different relationship to a thing they like, and they have their own language about this. And so I'm continually going back to this one word that a person uses to describe something. So it's like, if I'm continually using the word, that's badass, that's badass, that's badass. How do I, that's really something the person really wants for themselves if they like something. Um, they want to be badass. Um, so how is it that I can now design badass into my product that most people who want to be badass will actually think that this product is really cool? So that's, that's what keeps me up at night. It's, uh, it's kind of an ongoing thing, and I'm, I'm starting to build some frameworks around doing this type of study where we actually do these one-word descriptions of things and people and, you know, and, 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 and try to get insights into a person's kind of really into their into the scary space of their brain about what they really want for themselves versus when you say describe yourself mm. you know when you start to use the language that you use to describe things you like you're actually really telling a deeper story about who you are so that's that's what's keeping me up these days <laughs> all right who's the next captain mayhem <laughs> uh that's a tough question i think for us at marta um figuring out how we can expand the system. We talked about the opportunity within the city of Atlanta, but we have expansion plans that go out beyond um, the city of Atlanta. We have three actual plans that we've been working on for a long time now. Georgia 400 North, heavy rail expansion, um, the Clifton Corridor light rail that would connect to Emory University and the CDC, and then I-20 East, which is a heavy rail expansion um, out along I-20 to the east. Uh, so for us, figuring out how we can get the funding to implement those projects, that's the biggest thing, really, that we're working on right now. And beyond that, even, thinking about how we can expand our service area. When MARTA was envisioned in 1965 by the state legislature, it was intended to be a regional transportation system. At that point, the region was really just five counties, but we, we aren't even there yet. Um, two of those, three of those counties initially elected not to participate in MARTA. So for a very long time, until 2014, we were just serving Fulton and DeKalb County. Um, now we're in Clayton County, but at the same time, the region has expanded to a 10, 20 county area depending on who you ask so the ultimate goal i think would be either for marta to be a truly regional transit system or for us to be part of a regional transit system that that truly gets people where they need to go within the region Jay white whale so at, after a brief moment of thinking i have to go a little bit more philosophical um so two of my passions in life are, are music and motorsports. And so that kind of bridges that art and science. And one of the things that I have yet to figure out is when to approach a design problem with art and when to approach a design problem with science. And to figure out that balance and to know intuitively when, when to bring the creative, the, the or to bring the analytical, when to think left brain, when to think right brain, and how to balance those two things is a problem that I, I think I'll, I'll probably have the, my, the rest of my life. But, so that's the thing I, w I would most like to solve. All right, so uh, it's been a very fun conversation. I enjoyed everyone's insights. Um, so if someone's listening at, at home and they want to learn more about uh, what you're doing with your company, your organization, or even more your, where you're publishing information, where could they go and find more? Just start with you, Jay. 
Uh, NineLabs.com is a good place to start. Um, you can find me on Twitter at JC, just letter J, letter C. Um, I'm jcornelius.com and designdriven.biz. Uh, you can find uh, Medicare Pathfinder at medicarepathfinder.com. You can find my personal um, consultancy is uh, db3.net, uh, db3 Innovation. Um, my personal site's dblack.me. And I'm starting up a new meetup group called Innovate ATL. Um, that's also part of, it's going to be loosely, uh, depending on if they reimburse me, uh, PDMA. Um, so, and, and, and we're hopefully people who love products will look at PDMA as uh, we're now starting a new chapter in Atlanta. We have, Marta has a, a website for all of our active TOD projects. So if you go to this site, you can go to the individual pages for each of our projects and get information on the status, see renderings, ask questions. It's co-urbanized.com slash Marta. And then I'm on Twitter at MartaTOD1. Somebody else had Marta TOD already. <laughs> um, and my email is A-R-H-E-I-N at itsmarta.com. Somebody already had marta.com also. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thanks for joining us tonight for this episode of the Hump Day Exchange. I'm, I want to thank our guests, uh, Jay Cornelius and Amanda Ryan and Dave Black. A round of applause for them. Thank you, please. And definitely our, our partners, uh, ATDC, Scheller College of Business, and, and our our best friends at uh, AT&T Foundry. Be sure to check out TechSquareATL.com for regular stories about TechSquare. Learn more about the Sandbox ATL membership club at SandboxATL.com. And if you want, you can book your breakthrough event at The Garage at BookTheGarage.com. And a final thank you to you, our listeners. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, we love it if you did share this podcast with a friend and spread the word on social media. So thank you guys very much. And until next episode, thank you very much. Take care. TechSquare ATL is a media studio connecting you to the heart of Atlanta's tech community. Copyright Sandbox Communities, LLC.